Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been since last week? I've been tolerably well, Gary. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Before we go into the proper discussion of this week, I did just want to quickly highlight two stories, just so that we can give them their appropriate attention, Michael. The first relates to Leo. Uh, someone asked him what he thought about, you know, Michael, all these Fine Gael TDs deciding that uh, now is a good time to leave Fine Gael because they definitely don't want to run in the next election. And a number of TDs have already gone. I think five sitting Fine Gael TDs have already uh, stepped aside. From talking to people and just general sense of things, mm, there's 10 to 12 Fine Gael TDs, including the five who left, who I wouldn't be surprised if they're going to stand aside before the next election. Now, I mean, Michael, these things are always up in the air until they're actually called, but some of them have seemed quite certain that they're not going to be handling the next election. And I'd assume Leo knows that as well. Yeah, I've I've heard five to possibly six are definitely leaving. No, they're not leaving Finnegan, they're leaving the doll, as in they're not standing again. But the number that may follow, yeah, could be up to 12 now. It's a hard job to leave. I mean, it's a dreadful job, by the way. I mean, people say, oh, look at all the money and the pensions and all that's all very well. You have no life. And I think that the sense that once upon a time, unless you have ambitions to a senior cabinet post or ultimately to be Taoiseach, and anybody who's in the door should want to be Taoiseach, I think. But once upon a time, there's a sense that maybe you could actually influence things. I, I, I think backbenchers... From conversations we've been having over the last few years with people, Gary, I think people who are either on the backbenches and, shall we say, don't think they're going to get off them or have gone back to the backbenches, don't really feel they have a whole lot of access to influence or power. I mean, in, in what is a small parliament, it just there's, there's not a sense that they're really achieving very much. Or, and also, they're just constantly doing things they don't really like and or they don't feel very enthusiastic about, and some stuff they really dislike, but yet they still do it. I mean, you know, one sympathy is limited in that sense, but it also it's going to simply be a pretty horrendous experience for some of them. Canvassing, they're not looking forward to it. It's a bit like I remember talking to Fianna Fallers who were out canvassing or getting ready to go canvassing in the two thousand and eleven election, and it wasn't it wasn't a prospect that they relished. And I think a lot of the, the, the Finnegan LTDs, more, I would say, like we've been saying mostly in rural constituencies, but I think there are going to be urban constituencies as well, where there's not a great sense that they're going to be meeting a, a warm or even a tepid reception at the door. So maybe it's time to go. I mean, if you've, if you've got the pension on, on board and maybe if you have the possibility of doing something else that might be more interesting or fulfilling, why not? The single greatest advantage you can have in Irish politics come an election is incumbency. And to lose already elected TDs makes it a hell of a lot harder to get back in. But I actually wanted to talk about how Leo referred to this, Michael. He was asked on, I believe, Virgin, what he thought of this. And he said that, you know, it's, it's nothing the party has done. It's nothing he's done. He takes no responsibility for it. It was merely a natural turnover of people. Now, Michael, I know you've talked to some of the people who've either said they will leave or are privately saying that they're going to leave later. Would you describe the reasons they're giving 
as indicating a natural turnover of people? Well, I, <laughs> I don't really know what natural turnover would mean. I mean, I would say in in the past, you tended to see people leaving in the sense of a natural turnover when they had reached the end of their career, when they were people of a certain fairly advanced age. And with uh, a daughter or a son ready to take over, I don't think that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who are just fed up. And you know that phrase which we used to hear a lot more than we do at the moment? It was very, it was a terrible thing for a long time in business. Burnt out. Some of these people, just they're just burnt out. I mean, you're being constantly dragged from here to there by your constituents. You, you're ballyragged for everything. There's a huge amount of turnover in your office of people looking to try and navigate the, the system and get whatever they can get out of it. You're being driven through the lobbies increasingly as lobby fodder. If you stray a little bit off the path of orthodoxy, you are a hissing and a byword. You are not a respectable person. So even opinions that you might, I was going to say, express in the privacy of parliamentary party meeting, but Gary, we've seen over the last few years, I mean, live tweeting basically that's happening within the parliamentary party meeting. So that that uh, that notion is gone. I think they're just fed up. I, I, it's certainly not that you got people out there saying, "Oh well, I, I've had a long career. I've been in the dark for thirty years. The time has come to." Move on and let the next generation. That is not the kind of thing I'm hearing. I, no, it is true. There is always there is turnover, but in a party the size of them, the number that they were talking, potentially the number that may be leaving, is going to represent a very significant proportion of the t- sitting TDs. And as you say, Gary, incumbent, incumbency is a, a big positive factor in any election in Ireland or in any country. And... Uh, you're going to. It's go, it's going to be very hard. It's going to be very hard. And also, it, it's not. It's not the same as it once was. My sense is, and this could be completely wrong. My sense was that once upon a time, the competition to replace them would have been fierce, and there would have been a lot of people there. And depending on your metrics, people who were well qualified to participate in that kind of contest. I'm thinking of two two constituencies. Just I won't mention them, but two constituencies specifically now, where the 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 candidate that's going to be is somebody who, frankly, has been tried and found wanting already, and there is absolutely no sense of confidence or belief that this is going to be any any different. But they have to have a warm body. They have to have somebody with some kind of name recognition, some kind of presence, so they're putting them in because they can't find anyone else. So, Michael, I'm surprised that you said there were there were two constituencies, but are are you saying that Fianna Fáil is going to run Malcolm Byrne in two places? <laughs> no, I wasn't actually thinking about Malcolm at all. I was thinking specifically of uh, Fine Gaelers in that instance. Um, where Malcolm... Where Malcolm runs is going to be an interesting question because we don't really know what the constituency is going to be like. Is the five-seater going to be divided, basically starting at Rosslare, moving north, and then stopping somewhere around Ferns, and then having some kind of new three-seater between North Wexford and South Wicklow? Well, not even South Wicklow, sort of South and Central Wicklow, West Wicklow. 
which is going to create an absolute nightmare of a constituency for canvassing going up the Glen of Amal, particularly if it's a winter a winter general election. Not nice. Um, there are those, we won't say who, we can't, but uh, that are advocating not for a three-seater, but for a four-seater, which might be more friendly for people who are, shall we say, have lost their moorings in their traditional uh, constituency and have now be moved to a more hostile environment vote-wise. But uh, that is still all up in the air because we have yet to know what the shape is like. And that's going to be something which will affect the election as well, Gary. We don't know what constituencies are going to be changed and how they're going to be changed and how the seats are going to be divvied up. It's all up in the air. And that may be also a factor in some of the people deciding to leave because they're just looking at the what they think is the most likely outcome of the redistribution of the with the with the increased population, and saying, you know what, I don't like the look of that. I'm getting it while the getting is good. Leo said, you know, these are natural reasons. I take no responsibility, Michael. <laughs> I take no responsibility. Mm. I take no responsibility for all of my uh, TDs leaving. Uh, with the exception of one rogue poll a couple of weeks ago, our party support is at or above where it was in the last general election. By any logical analysis, we're gaining seats in that scenario, not losing them. He then went on to describe what was happening at the minute and what had happened after the last election, uh, with TDs leaving and new TDs coming in from the Shannon. Uh, as indicative of a party in the process of renewal, which made me think immediately, Michael, of Blackadder. <laughs> yeah. Younger oh. listeners may not be familiar with this, but there's a wonderful line in Blackadder Goes Forth, where General Melchett, who's played by Stephen Fry, gives the following line. If nothing else works, a total pig-headed unwillingness to look facts in the face will see us through this. <laughs> like, you know, Gary, it, in various... What, what do you expect him to say? I am the man who is basically in charge of the decrepitude of Fine Gael. We are a party in terminal decline. And the departure of these TDs is just indicative of a ship going down and the rats who have the most sense are getting into the lifeboats as quickly as they can. What what else do you expect him to say? Really? I mean, he could add on with not even the Leinster House staff I have to deal with on a daily basis like me as a person. One of the things that we are hearing, and, you know, anecdotes don't make anecdata, as we always say, but one of the things that seems to be consistently... And it's not a surprise, is that if you talk to the traditional Fine Gael voters out in the shticks they do not like him. They like him even less than they liked him <coughs> a few years ago. I say it's not a surprise because if you, you will remember, Gary, that when the election for the leadership took place, Coveney beat him like two to one on the membership vote. But Leo had already got the thing in the bag by having won so convincingly with the Oireachtas members. So the, 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 the poll amongst the actual party membership didn't actually really matter. It was clear and obvious then that when it came to the to the lads out out in, out in the, in the branches and the constituency organisations that he was not beloved. And that lack of love has it has not diminished. If in anything, it has intensified. 
So then again, you know, these are just bitter clingers, Gary. So I just want to touch on that, Michael, because it it's all gone. Anything that reminds one of Blackadder should be celebrated. Although it wasn't the that's not the best quote from Blackadder goes forth. I'll put a link to a video below which contains the uh, best quote from Blackadder goes forth. Michael, you probably know this one. It's it's the one where they have the model of the land they've won. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the second one was I just wanted to comment on Sinn Fein's wonderful metamorphosis into the butterfly they are becoming, Michael. We've talked a lot about you know, Sinn Féin uh, changing itself and the different strands of Sinn Féin that are pulling in different directions. And effectively, Sinn Féin has a working class, very nationalistic side of it, and it increasingly has a more progressive, idealistic part of it. And we can discuss where that comes from. We have, I suppose, actually in detail. But there's always been this question of when Sinn Féin gets into power, what way do they go? Because if that split is not uh, adroitly managed, the party will schism. And there are already people preparing for that schism, other people in politics, who see that they can use it to their advantage. And the people in Sinn Féin are not stupid, Michael. No. So you would think that they are in many ways preparing for this. But the problem is, as they get closer to government, as they get more and more, shall we say, necessary to the respectable people, the respectable people talk to Sinn Féin's leadership more and try and draw them into their things. So all of the gravitational pull is to basically go for Sinn Féin, the new Labour Party. And I just thought it was, it was interesting in that vein that they have decided to, Michael, in the words of their foreign affairs spokesman, Matt Carty, refine certain policies in a way that's contemporary. This is to say they have dropped their, I believe, long-standing policy commitment to automatically withdraw from EU common defence arrangements and from the Partnership for Peace project that NATO runs. Now, in real terms, what does this mean? Very, very little. But as a signal, as a sign of where the party is going, it seems like they're getting ready to drop their more, uh, should we say, troublesome elements, Michael. The less respectable elements. The elements that may occasionally like setting things on fire. Well, <laughs> no. Weren't they historically opposed to EU membership anyway? I think it's interesting and laudable that he chose to say that they're refining these policies rather than going on a journey or evolving because evolving and going on a journey, I think, are, are tired at this stage. So it's nice to see that they are actually refining. But, you know, Sinn Féin may have a greater capacity to live in the paradox of modernity. It wasn't its... I can't remember who said it, that one of the, the signs of the, of the modern mind is the capacity to hold two separate but contradictory opinions at the same time and still be capable of action. They, are, they have shown themselves to be capable of a degree of... Pragmatism, maybe? Sensible pragmatism? I mean, for example, you saw there was a case recently of a Sinn Féin councillor who made a statement that was rather old-fashioned and regressive regarding the nature of gender and sex, clinging to a fairly old-fashioned sort of biological understanding of that binary distinction. And 
we are still waiting for the temple to fall down on his head. There was an expectation that he would be taken in and castigated for having such a... But doesn't appear to have happened. Uh, for example, even though they are very green in, in every sense, they have yet managed to avoid signing up to very certain specific green policies regarding net zero and elimination of cars and taxation and green, you know, the carbon taxes and all that kind of thing. They're managing to avoid committing themselves to positions that they know are not going to be vote winners. And I don't know. I think, and I'm not being sarky here, I think there's a, there's an admirable flexibility about that. That I used to say to uh, a man that you knew, Gary, who had who was a, a candidate in a general election and ha- had a terrible habit of coming up with ideas. And you're trying to run a few candidates around the, the gaff or trying to help them run a campaign. The last thing you want is somebody coming up with ideas. I used to say to Roger, yeah, 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 that's grand, but... Tell me now, how many votes will that get in Kilchamach? And of course, the answer the, the answer would be silence. And then finally, well, not many. I say, well, okay, let's just concentrate getting votes in Kilchamach. Kilchamach being, sort of, shall we say, a standard for any particular box you want in, in the country. And I think they asked themselves that question in a way that, bizarrely, Fianna Fáil, which was a machine for winning elections, and understood, I, I always felt, not cynically, but organically, what would get your votes in Kilchamark? They understood that. And when they looked at policies, they understood that that was the fundamental question. What will get your votes in Kilchamark? And they have lost that, it seems to me, to a large extent. They don't. They, they, they ask the wrong, they're looking at the wrong boxes, they're looking at the wrong constituencies, asking the wrong questions. But Sinn Féin haven't. Uh, no, I, I think you're right that Sinn Féin probably has the most accurate political antenna of any of the parties. Where I think they are stumbling is actually in probably a new problem for them. I, I suppose just to take a step back here, I think Sinn Féin is, is well positioned and will likely become one of either two things, bare massive existential fucking up. Yeah. On one hand, it becomes effectively the new Finnafall, much like the old Finnafall, actually. Mm-hmm. Pretty much exactly like the old Finnafall, but reinvigorated... And without the, um, shall we say, extreme baggage that Fianna Fáil now has. And on the other side, it becomes the Labour Party. Yeah. Pretty much in the same sense as it becomes Fianna Fáil. And if you've seen what Sinn Féin has been doing inside the trade unions for the last decade, and possibly longer, that's actually quite an interestingly similar move to what Labour did. Sinn Féin control a number of areas within the trade unions now. And that could be quite interesting because there's, there's money there. Actually, significant money if it's properly managed. Where I think Sinn Féin actually has the problem now is its leadership. And I don't mean in the sense they had when Adams was there that there were reputational concerns and whether or not he was you know, outside the Overton window. I think the problem they have there is that the people leading Sinn Féin are very smart but have developed a particular position on certain uh, policies which puts them at odds with their own voters. Yeah. And as long as that's managed and you're willing to work with your voters, that's not really a problem. But as they get closer to power, I think they're going to... Because, you know, when you get close to power, you can kind of smell it. And there is like a 
your sense you just need to touch it and you know nothing can go wrong you're on the golden path i think they're going to do more and more things that piss off that working class base and if they don't handle that they're going to have real problems now are they going to be immediate problems no highly unlikely you'll get at least unless you like as i said fuck up spectacular you'll get at least the next election but as you get closer to power and particularly if you get in power contradictions can oftentimes become a lot harder to manage because you can do more and if you can do more there's a tendency to do more and uh then people can look and start comparing it with what you're saying like this pieces of the Sinn Féin manifesto which appear to directly contradict Sinn Féin policy as said and lobbied for by their people but that only you know eventually that tire hits the ground yeah I, I, I think that that is a concern for them and to use a sporting analogy Sinn Féin are now closer to the end game than they have ever been they're now looking down the barrel of the real possibility of getting their hands on the levers of power. And that's always the test of a, of a team or, or an individual sports person. You get to that last bit, you're, you're, in the, you're up two sets to love and you're, you're up 4-2 and you're on your, your own serve. Do you freeze? Do you, do you get panicked? Do you get distracted? Do you start thinking about the thing? Or do you, do, the, do you continue to do those things that made you successful in the first place? And the things that I think we've said before that I think that have made them successful amongst other things, and I think amongst other things are the, is the, the collapse of the capacity of the other two parties to connect with their voters and to connect with their, their organisation, or in, in fact, to be quite happy to leave their organisations to, to die on, on the vine. Sinn Féin has an organisation. It does seem to listen to them. It cares about them. Like we talked before, I... I I became aware talking to a couple of people that after you had all the the protests on the North Wall and the issue in the inner city areas about, say, asylum seekers immigration centres being set up, Sinn Féin actually went out and started talking, doing a door-to-door to explain their policy, to explain the situation, to talk to people, to engage. Now, whatever you think about their policy, I thought that was exactly the right thing to do. And something that everybody else should have been doing that if they wanted to to, to explain what was happening. They actually talked to people rather than talk down to them or to lecture them through a television camera. They do have, they still have a connection there. And I think that's going to be important. Now, whether or not, as they get closer to the winning line, they start to lose that. I, I, I know that sense that now that the respectable people are talking to them, there will inevitably be that draw to be that 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 sucking in where they will be enveloped not just by the permanent government but by the NGOs and their desire to have the good opinion of these people and listen we've been talking about this for a very long time now that when you look at the polling like the gap that between certain kinds of policies and the and and the and the and the values of their of, of their voters and the grassroots membership that there is a tension there there's a tension between, say, the red and the green. There are those people who are far more interested in the national question issues around it than they are, and questions of identity than they are, with some kind of fairly hard left economic policies and, shall we say, a more progressive liberal social agenda. And that's something they're going to have to manage. Um, we shall see whether or not they can manage it. I, but I think it's a problem for them. It is going to be a problem. 
but the, then you you're left with the question and this well who 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 benefits by that who picks up those votes because unless there is an alternative i mean what may happen is simply that they they keep their votes because there's nowhere else for those votes to go i think if people are smart and organized and that is a far higher bar than people tend to realize in politics there will be opportunities there for multiple groups when that happens and if they're not ready by that point well they'll probably let a once in a lifetime uh, opportunity to immediately become very powerful slip away from them and frankly michael i wouldn't be terribly surprised by either option to that yeah well, that's that's happened before i'm sure there's a very decent chance that that will precisely that will happen again i suppose we will we will touch back on this um probably at length for the next one michael i just want to mention this briefly free speech ireland who grand bunch of lads have started a campaign uh, against the passing of the coming hate speech bill yes what they're asking people to do is to write to michael d higgins and ask him to refer the uh the bill or particularly section 10 of the bill to the supreme court now the president has this power under article i think 26 of the constitution he, he can do this here's the problem though i think this is a very very bad idea for this reason one section 10 is horrendous as is i believe it's section 15 or 16 that deals with the the warrant question which requires you to give police access to your computers including your phone yes that i think is actually probably the worst uh, worst provision of this law so there's two reasons here one is the irish constitution is replete with phrases to stop rights from being seen as absolute things like the common good public morality uh, public order yes yes i don't think on the face of it that the bill is unconstitutional i think perhaps the section about the the warrants might be uh, but in relation to, to freedom of speech, I don't think there's a realistic chance of the Supreme Court knocking this out if the president puts it forward. I think to have any chance to have this bill rendered unconstitutional at the court level, you would need someone who had very particular standing under the law, Yeah, who was aided by some very, very good legal professionals who could effectively craft the question in such a way to basically put the knife right in. I think that's the only way this will happen. So you might ask, well, why do I care about the president uh, referring this to the Supreme Court if I think that someone could bring a case if they had appropriate standing and maybe knock it out? And it's because of this. Article 3433 of the Irish Constitution. No court whatsoever, or sorry, no court whatever, shall have jurisdiction to question the validity of a law or any provision of a law, the bill for which shall have been referred to the Supreme Court by the President under Article 26 of this Constitution, or to question the validity of a provision of a law where the corresponding provision in the bill for such law shall have been referred to the Supreme Court by the President under the said Article 26. Which is to say, if this bill is referred to the Supreme Court by the President, either in full or the president drafts a particular uh, question that he wants the Supreme Court to answer, anything considered by the court can never again be questioned in an Irish court. Yes. It will be locked in 
And that's a bit of a problem if the law overall is constitutional, but there's a possibility that a well-crafted attack could disable it. Because by having Higgins do this, you give Higgins control over exactly what the Supreme Court has asked to do. I don't think if, if Higgins refers it, and I don't see why he would, I don't think it would make really any positive difference. Now, I'd love to be wrong, Michael, if he goes ahead with it, but I think this is a very silly thing to do, that there is an immense amount of risk here, which I don't feel is properly being considered, and it would be a terrible shame if the people who were, you know, who are fighting for to keep free speech effectively managed to ensure that this could never be gotten rid of through the court system, and that effectively you would have to replace it entirely through the doll and Shannon. Yeah, I, I've talked to a couple of lawyers about this. I'm a very long way from being a constitutional lawyer. And the, the, the lawyers I talked to were closer because they were lawyers, but not constitutional. And they were sceptical about whether or not this was the right way. You have, shall we say, a lower level of expectation regarding the provisions, the rights provisions than I do. Now, I understand why, I mean, certainly the, the text of the Constitution does put a lot of qualifications around what that part of the Constitution which we think of as being the Bill of Rights. However, while I, I think that it is, that is true, I think that the, the jurisprudence around the Constitution has changed and evolved when the Constitution was written. I think most people saw those not so much as being things that would be referred to as being like hard rocks of law, but rather they were headlines that were put in to give the the doll a sense of what we should aspire to. But I think the jurisprudence has evolved because it, we went from this kind of, in, in, in 37, you went from a, a system of, uh, which was basically following like the, the, the British positivistic tradition, which said, you know, we, basically the place that for making law was Parliament and the Constitution was there, as, a, as I say, as a kind of a beacon towards which we... We should go, but things like say the evolution of the of natural law theory uh, in throughout say particularly the fifties and sixties, it seems like the fluoride case, which saw the introduction of the the idea of unenumerated rights, because there is no right to privacy, no right to bodily integrity articulated in the constitution, but it was found to exist by the court in the fluoride case. I mean, the fluoride case was lost, because, but it did recognise the, the 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 complainant had did have a right to bodily integrity in the constitution, but. I do think that it's it's more likely that you you want to find the right question. Now, whether or not if if they look at the bill and they they do find that there may be one or two parts of the bill which are repugnant to the constitution, um, under either say speech or the rights of speech or rights of assembly or connected political activity, or whether it's um, search the the the. You know, warrantless searches or the nature, the, the 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 expansive nature of the rights given for search, or whether it's because of the implied inversion of the burden of proof, where the assumption is not of innocence but of guilt, and where the the defendant would the plaintiff would have to actually demonstrate their innocence rather, and the state can assume it. That might be found to be repugnant to the constitution as well. I don't know. But I think it is a risky thing. I mean, because they may say, well, on the face of it, there are concerns, but that if this is implemented in a certain way and it's done 
In so, uh, if, depending on the courts look at it, and the, the the doll may introduce certain controls or whatever. I, I don't know. I don't know. They, they they may decide on the on the base. They don't want to get involved in it, and that on the face of it, it is constitutional. It, 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 with it falls, it, but yeah, I think that maybe it would be better to if you are in a position to challenge it line by line and go in with some good lawyers, some good advocates, and, and make the argument that this specific thing. And then rather than knock down the bill, but rather gut the bill, you don't remove the bill, but you you take you take out the teeth of the bill and you make it less effective and you make it a less dangerous piece of legislation. That might be a more pragmatic way to go about it. But listen, Gary, neither of us are constitutional lawyers. We're not, what's it, was it? We're not, neither of us are, are, are John Kelly. But yes, I think you're... I share your concerns, put it that way. I mean, also the people who are saying, oh, there might be issues under European law. I, f- I would find that interesting. I would like to hear, generally when people say it, there's not a lot of follow-on. There's maybe a reference to a particular piece yeah. of some European thing. But hate speech laws exist in Europe. Some of them have existed for quite a length of time. I mean, Germany's, for instance, is probably the most famous. So there is a little bit of, well... If that's true, why hasn't that stopped any of the others? And I'd like to hear what is uniquely different about that that they think would fall into this. But uh, can I just make one final point on this, Michael? Yeah. We should have kept the original name of the Supreme Court. Which was? Well, I say the original name. The, the Constitution says it should be called the Supreme Court. But before it gets to saying what the name of it is, it, it refers to it as the Court of Final Appeal. And I just like that name. Yes. That's more of a, a taste thing, really. Style point. Go on. Alcohol Action Ireland have done something. Oh, God. Alcohol Action Ireland are calling for the government to ban alcohol brands from advertising zero alcohol uh, drinks if those drinks have similar branding to alcoholic alternatives. Mm. Because, Michael, children might see it. They might see someone drinking a non-alcoholic drink. But because the branding is similar to to the alcoholic drink, the children will be indoctrinated, uh, or sorry, sorry, they say conditioned to think differently about when it's appropriate to drink alcohol. And I did like the response of Drinks Ireland, who one of the they have members in the um, Irish alcoholic beverage sector, who their first point was that Alcohol Action Ireland are government funded lobby group. Which we don't do enough of, Michael. There's a lot of you know, industries taking shit from these people. And usually they say, oh, we don't want to get into the mud and point out that these people are an entirely government-funded lobby group. But we should. We should remind people at every possible chance that the government is funding groups to lobby on very particular political positions using, you know, your money. They also make a point that actually is of relevance to what we see in some of the discussions about tobacco and vaping. So Drinks Island made this point where they said that Alcohol Action Ireland are saying if people see the advertising for non-alcoholic drinks, that they will drink alcoholic drinks. But Drinks Ireland make the point that, well, what about if it goes the other way? And people who drink alcoholic drinks, they might switch to drinking non-alcoholic drinks because they see the adverts and they think it's appealing and therefore there is a harm reduction element to it. Which is exactly the debate that's happening in relation to tobacco and vaping, where the tobacco control groups you know, receive government funding, are lobbying that anything that makes vapes easier will increase people smoking and the people involved with vaping 
are generally making the point that no, that's wrong. And really, this is a harm reduction thing that will get smokers to begin vaping. That seems more likely. So it's not just more likely. That's what the evidence tells us. And that the, the data, the empirical data that we have tells us that. But I don't know. I mean, I'm reminded, I, I, I was going to mention it last week, but I didn't. there was a, there was a, a report published, a report. Something appeared on the internet and elsewhere from Alcohol Action Ireland, which also in, included in, in, in it, under the, the heading, there is no safe level of alcohol consumption. And that alcohol will cause cancer or will increase your likelihood of getting cancer. Now, for a start, none of these things are ever quantified. They, um, there was a response done some time ago to that particular claim, which said that we, it's only true about one particular kind of cancer. And then even then, if you have a likelihood, I am just throwing a number out here, Gary, but just to make the statistical point, a likelihood of one in 10,000 of getting a particular kind of cancer. And by drinking alcohol, your, your, your God goes from one in 10,000 to one in 7,000. Well, that's an important piece of information to give people when you're saying, well, it'll increase your likelihood. The, the statement is true, but what the actual risks is, what the actual risk is, and to what extent the risk and the elevation of the risk is connected to the amount and the, the amount of alcohol you consume and the manner in which you consume it also should be part of the discussion. They, are, they said that at any one time, every day, 1,500 beds, 1,500 beds in Irish hospitals are uh, occupied by people with alcohol-related conditions. I would love to see the data on that, Gary. I'd love to see how that, that number was arrived at and to what extent the people that were actually in those hospital beds had something which was actually materially caused by alcohol consumption. But maybe it was. I don't know. But I would be curious. You know, what's, what's the point? You said you know, they, they, they're point out they're government-funded. Yes, and as you then went, went on to qualify, you were paying them. It, not government-funded, taxpayer-funded. That every time they lobby to make it more difficult for you to get two, two cans of beer from the off-license because they have to close at 10 o'clock, not at 11 o'clock, or they increase the uh, price of a cheap bottle of wine or a bottle of whiskey, or they make it more difficult uh, and they increase costs to shops because they have to put up swinging cowboy doors or whatever it is. Everything that is being paid for by you. These people are lobbying against you and against what you want to do and your interests. And they are the good and decent and virtuous people, but they want no alcohol. And I would be much happier if they just said, no drink. We, we are campaigning for alcohol to be banned and see how well that goes down. Not to, you know, Michael, speak ill of Ireland's fine, fine health NGOs, but <clears throat> I would have thought that, you know, given the amount of preventable death and suffering caused by both tobacco and, you know, alcohol, for all that it is a very enjoyable substance, we've got to admit there are negatives to it, Michael. Oh, yeah. You would have thought that just from our, our, a, what we would call a harm, you know, um, reduction approach, or if we could be blunt, the idea that medical organizations should care that less people die and suffer, there would be some sort of wiggle room to possibly look at, well, maybe we can work with the industry or maybe we can actually look at alternatives to these things that are less harmful, as opposed to what I would class as a 
pretty clearly ideological opposition, which, while very easy to cloak and explain as having some sort of greater good utility uh, behind it, is clearly actively harmful. There is a sort of, the perfect is the enemy of the good, but in this case, the good is God knows how many preventable deaths. You know, if they, if you wanted to look at preventable deaths, if that was your real thing, if you let's look at the one thing, one an area where we can seriously impact on preventable deaths. The number one concern surely should be part globally and indeed within Europe is the fact that that we have consistently refused to use nuclear power rather than relying like say the Germans get about 31% of their 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 new their energy production from burning coal the funniest part about that i think actually is that we've started to see more discussion of um what is it called particulate matter and the harm it can do to lungs the human body all that sort of stuff and we know that you know nuclear power doesn't uh, doesn't really do that as such michael just substantially cleaner would again kill less people. But we can't do that because that would be technology, I suppose. That would only solve the energy crisis. That wouldn't do anything else. Well, I suppose it wouldn't it would, it would stop the death of people, but like, who gives a shit about that in the Green Movement? In the Green Movement, yeah. Well, in fact, well, that's a whole different issue because the Green Movement doesn't see people, human beings dying on the planet necessarily as being a bad thing. I mean, we, the, if you're, if you're, if you're on the degrowth end of that particular, I mean, there are several prominent elements, or shall we say, of the anti-humanist group, uh, the, the, the strong degrowthers within the group that see that the, 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 the upper limit of the human population in the face of the earth should be around 500 million. So that's going to take a fairly substantial, uh, reduction in the present, the present human population. Now, Michael, not to not to speak for everyone here, but I'm sure that all of our listeners would agree totally that the deep green movement has shown that it's very willing to look at, you know, a pile of dead children and say, now, some might think that looks bad, but have we considered that it might not be? <laughs> yes, that's something. There's, there's a, there's, I'm, I'm saying this because I, I was reading a report in uh, a journal, the Environmental Science and Technology Journal, where they looked at the the title of the paper was prevented mortality and greenhouse gas emissions from historical and projected nuclear power, and in the section of mortality, I'll just read the first sentence: says, "We calculate a mean value of one point eight four million human deaths prevented by nuclear power production between from nineteen seventy one to two thousand and nine, with an average of seventy six thousand prevented deaths per year from two thousand to two thousand and nine." Now that's the by the by nuclear power if you actually then look at the numbers of the number of deaths caused by particulate uh particulate air pollution associated with uh say coal burning particularly coal burning power stations across the world annually you're looking in numbers that are not in the thousands or the ten thousands but in the hundreds of thousands and millions but nuclear power is no go and and strangely, the the health NGOs don't seem to be particularly interested in looking at that particular, that issue. And if they do, if they do, and there was a report recently about the number of people who died, particular that are lives lost due to particulate air pollution in Ireland, which again was somewhere somewhere like one and a half thousand. And although, although what that actually means is a, 
not actually one and a half thousand people dying, but rather when they give these numbers, it's what they take is the cumulative number on average of years of life lost and then add those up and then and divide them by the average life expectancy to get the number of lives. So it's not actually individual people dying, but rather people who are living six months less than they would and then they average up the total and get a number. But the response to that is not, let's go, <laughs> oh, let's get more, let's build more renewables because that's going to be, that's going to solve the problem. Anyway, I believe we will wrap up there, Michael. We will be back, of course, next week on, unless it's a bank holiday or I'm simply not available. Um, apparently, I need to go to Jerusalem at some point. But not for any religious purpose, though. Uh, but yeah, we'll probably be about. Michael, is, are we going to be about next week? Is well, there anything I don't know? What don't I know, Michael? Well, they're the, <laughs> sorry, I feel like Dick Cheney, isn't it, Dick Cheney? There are the things we know that we know, and the things we know we don't know, but the things that we, the problem is the things we don't know what we don't know. The unknown unknowns, that's our problem. He got heavily mocked by that, but what he said was both accurate and actually very important to understand. Particularly the idea of the unknown known. Yeah. <laughs> but um, on, unless we're saying next year in Jerusalem, but it's not next year in Jerusalem, it's next month in Jerusalem, I think we should be okay. And we should be back, all things being good, next Sunday. Until then, have a good week. All the best.